15. Let's begin reading verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote, the, uh, and, uh, devote to destruction all that they have. Do not, dis- do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel. And behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission And said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. 
For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may, that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Let's bow in prayer. <clears throat> oh God in heaven, we ask now your Holy Spirit to come and wake us up to the, the truth of who you are, the truth of what sin is, and what the gospel means for sinners. I pray that your Spirit, Lord, would not let this word um, go unheard, Thank you that it will not be spoken in vain. For Lord, your word always accomplishes the task for which it was sent. We pray that today that task would be light and life and joy and peace in believing in Jesus. We pray in his name, amen. As I said last, uh, we are in the middle, in, the, in between uh, series and the last week we talked about uh, obedience and the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ to run in the ways of obedience taken from Romans chapter six. And I thought I'd come back to the topic of obedience this week for two primary reasons. Um, without a biblical understanding of uh, obedience, we, we cannot appreciate the real glory of the gospel or the beauty of Jesus or really delight in uh, the freedom that we have and exercise that freedom with, with joy, the freedom to obey. Uh, obedience is, in some sense, beneath everything. It is the key to understanding human history. It was for disobedience that Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden and the world was placed under a curse. Uh, it was obedience that brought redemption into this world and is the power that will be making everything new as Jesus Christ, our obedient king, came and accomplished um, our redemption through his obedience. And so obedience is, is a magnificent theme running through Scripture and underneath human history. But, but we also need to think about it and talk about it biblically because sin is a narcotic that dulls our mind and heart. Uh, it dulls the sense of the soul. So that obedience doesn't seem like a, like a, like a majestic, big, beautiful thing. It, it, it seems often like a little thing. Not nearly as urgent as our needs or our hurts or our wants. And so when I ask people, what could I pray for you? Almost no one says obedience. We point to other things. If you really want to pray for me in a helpful way, let's talk about my needs. Let's talk about my hurts. Let's talk about my difficult circumstances, my wants. But why don't we say... Um, above everything else, would you please pray 
that, God, that I would be godly, that, that the Lord would be at work in a powerful way in my life so that I run in the freedom I have in Jesus Christ. Sin, you see, blinds our, uh, the sense of our soul and so that obedience doesn't seem precious and worthy and valuable and delightful. And so we have to just, again and again, come back to Scripture and have our eyes opened and formed by the truth that we find here. Well, this is a, this is a very solemn, sobering chapter. Here we have a man who was greatly blessed by God. Saul called to be the first king of Israel, sort of the George Washington of the nation of Israel. And he gives away his honor and he forfeits his blessing by a single act of disobedience. When I read a story like this in scripture and I, uh, you just hear about Saul, this man so blessed, so honored, so privileged, throwing it away so foolishly. I get the same sick feeling in my stomach that I get when I hear about a pastor who's, who's been expelled from the ministry because of some sin or some faithful uh, member of the church who through just disobedience falls into some grievous sin, ends up leaving the church and then, uh, and then at some point leaving the faith. And, and, and there's that sick feeling in your stomach and there's a sense of trepidation that goes with stories like that because whatever weakness dwells in them, dwells in me. And the only thing that keeps me from going that path and you from going that path is the power and the grace and the goodness of God. It's a sobering story. We're going to look first at uh, the command that God gives and then uh, Saul's disobedience. First, the command, again, just to uh, set us in the historical context, this is um, this is right after the period of the judges. Remember when Israel first came up out of Egypt? They didn't have a king, but God raised up judges to lead them. And one of the recurring themes in the book of Judges is that there was no king in the land, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no spiritual head in that sense. And so people just kind of wandered off went and did their own thing, and, and the judgment of God would come, and God would raise up a judge who would restore um, the nation by the grace and power of God, but, but, but they wanted a king, and, and God finally gives them a king in Saul. But what do you do when the, when the king does what is right in his own eyes? And that's what's happened here in the life of Saul. Saul has already stumbled once back in chapter 13. You can read about that where uh, Saul was about to, uh, he was preparing for war and he um, was told to wait. Samuel was going to come and offer a sacrifice that the blessing of God would be on this endeavor. And, and uh, Saul waited and waited and finally got sick of waiting. And he, the king, took on himself a priestly duty and he offered the sacrifice. He had no right to offer sacrifices. We're seeing already in Saul a bit of casualness concerning the holy things of God. And he offers up the sacrifice, and when Samuel gets there, he's, he's enraged and, and tells him, because you've done this, your descendants will not inherit the throne. And now, two chapters later, Saul is about to lose the throne himself. A God sent Samuel to Saul with a command. Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me. To anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Samuel is God's prophet. What Samuel, when Samuel speaks, thus saith the Lord, that's God speaking. Nothing less. And so when Samuel says, now listen to the words of the Lord, 
That is the essence of obedience. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's the essence of obedience. And it's precisely where, Paul, where Saul is going to fail. He, he will not listen. God, uh, through Samuel, commands Saul, says, I'm going to send you on a mission, a divine mission, to destroy the Amalekites. And we need to know a little bit about the Amalekites. Uh, There's a history and a theology behind this command. Uh, The Amalekites are descendants of Esau, Jacob's older brother, Jacob being the father of Israel. Uh, The Amalekites, like Esau, hate Jacob and his descendants and hate Jacob's God. Uh, So that uh, when Israel comes up out of Egypt, the Amalekites see an opportunity to finally do what they've longed to do for uh, ever since Jacob and Esau, to destroy Jacob, to destroy Israel. And so they go to war with Israel with that in mind, uh, to, to make war with Israel. And, and uh, here you have in, in the Old Testament sort of uh, a, a type of the, an antichrist. They are of the line of Cain. Remember, in, in all through Scripture, all through redemptive history, we see these lines of Cain, line of Seth, one being opposed to God, the other being the people of God. Um, the Amalekites are from the, they're in the line of Cain. They're opposed to God. They're an antichrist. They hate God. They hate his purposes. They want to destroy his people. That's who they are. And so God makes war with them. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 17. In fact, why don't you just quickly turn, if you have your Bible, Exodus chapter 17. You can see this for yourself. This is the great story where um, Aaron and Hur hold up the uh, arms of Moses, and as long as Moses' arms are upheld and, and he's holding up the staff and blessing over the people, uh, they are, they're winning the war because uh, God is, 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 is engaged. It's the whole point of it. But notice uh, Exodus 17, verse 14. So we have in verse 8 the story of uh, Amalek coming to fight against the people of God. Verse 14 The Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And so they defeated, the the Israelites defeated Amalek that day, but they did not destroy them. But God made a promise there that he would destroy them. And now that promise has come to fulfillment. And this is why Saul is commanded to utterly destroy the Amalekites. Um, the, 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 the clear command, go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman and child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So this is complete, utter devastation. It's meant to be that. The, the, the Hebrew word for this is harem. Uh, it, it's, it's a ban. It's, it means devoted to destruction. In a sense, God is saying, everything here belongs to me and is to be offered up to me. God, in an act of judgment, saying this is set apart. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a picture in time of end time judgment. Think Sodom and Gomorrah. But Israel is to be the instrument of God to carry out this, this judgment. Now, this, this seems uh, barbaric. It, it seems um, it's difficult for people to reconcile this with, with what we think about God. This doesn't sound like Jesus, and yet we need to understand this is precisely Jesus. 
This is Jesus speaking. He's always been the king of Israel. He's the captain of the army of the Lord of hosts. This is Jesus making war with Amalek, with his enemy, the devil, as he one day will make war with this world. It's a token uh, of what's going to happen on that last day, that day of final judgment, when the enemies of God will be utterly, completely swept away by the wrath of the Lamb. That's Revelation chapter 6, where you hear of people crying out to the hills to cover them so that they might escape from the wrath of the Lamb. So there's a lot of theology and history going on here. This is, this is the living God enacting just judgment upon a rebelling nation. This is judgment in time as it will be in the end of time. And so Saul has a calling now. He has a mission and it is linked to his office as king. Uh, there's, there's a theological meaning to kingship in the Old Testament. It's not just the guy who's the boss. Eugene Merrill, in his uh, excellent book, Kingdom of Priests, says kingship in Israel was part and parcel of God's program to demonstrate and carry out his sovereign rule over creation. Kings were stewards. Uh, they, were, they were put in place to carry out God's sovereign rule over creation, to demonstrate God's rule. And this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When Adam is placed in the Garden of Eden, he's placed there as a king, charged with demonstrating and exercising God's sovereign rule on earth. He's a king. And, and a key part of that uh, of that office is uh, Adam is called to fight against God's enemy and exercise God's judgment upon the enemy. And so that when the devil comes and tempts, uh, Adam's role was to resist him and defeat him through obedience as we see Jesus doing uh, in Luke chapter 4 in the wilderness. Well, Adam, of course, fails and the tragedy of his failure is that all those who are under Adam also then are expelled from the garden. Also come under the curse that God has placed on this world. And so Adam the king, in sin, in failing to obey, becomes Adam the rebel and all his descendants after him the same. Now in Israel, here in 1 Samuel, we have Eden revisited. Once again, God has established a holy people, his people, in a holy land. Once again, God has installed a king to demonstrate and carry out his sovereign rule. Once again, a critical part of that calling is to stand against God's enemies and to uh, destroy them in an act of obedience before the Lord. And once again, we, we see failure, where Saul decides to serve himself. Saul decides not to listen to the word of the Lord, to the voice of the Lord. And that's the essence. God said, destroy everything. Saul understood exactly what God had said, but Saul didn't do it. Verse 9, but, it's not the word you want to read there, but Saul and the army spared Agag. And the best of the sheep and the cattle and the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good, the, these they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Why did he spare Agag? 
Well, we're not told, but it was the practice of that day. If you were a, if you were a king and you go and you conquer a neighboring state, you spare the, the, the head, the king, so you can parade him around. And you can boast, right, as you, as you drag him around in chains. It's to make you look good. Why does he spare the, uh, the, the, the cattle, the best of the sheep and, and the cattle? Well, uh, because they're valuable. And, and the people saw that they were valuable, and, and, and uh, the people you know, didn't want to destroy them. Uh, these are spoils of war. Everyone gets the spoils of war. It's, it's one of the benefits of going to war. It seemed completely unreasonable to destroy all these perfectly good cattle and, and sheep. You see, what they didn't understand, it wasn't their war, it was God's war, and therefore it wasn't their spoils, it was God's spoils. It wasn't theirs to have. It's exactly the same with Achan. If you remember when the Israelites first go into the land of, of Canaan, and they, they go to war with Ai, and, or, or Jericho, or, um, no, it, it's, it, it, Jericho. And, and Achan takes for, not, is it Achan? Yeah, yeah. He takes some things for, I should, I should do my homework before I tell these stories. And it, he sees something, and it's really good. It's valuable. It'd be silly to throw this away. And so he takes it for himself. Well, he's robbing God in doing that. He's stealing from God. And it's exactly the same thing here. But notice when, when Samuel comes, um, Saul resorts to justifications, as all sinners do. Uh, he seems to, ex- to expect a congratulation. So Saul, Samuel arrives and Saul says, uh, blessed right, be to you. The Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. I've defeated Amalek, the Amalekites, devoted them to destruction. And, Saul, and Samuel says, well, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? Uh, what's this lowing of cattle that I hear? And Saul, well, he does what sinners do. He tries to justify. Well, the soldiers, the, the people, they brought them from the Amalek. It wasn't me. It's blame shifting, see? It wasn't me. The woman you gave me. I tell you, that's where the problem started. And that's exactly what, that's exactly what Saul does here. The, the, the people brought them. And then he, he tries to, started to cover it up. Uh, we, we saved the best cattle because we want to offer them in worship to the Lord. We're going to, we're going to have a sacrifice. We're going to sacrifice all these cattle. Um, that, that was the plan. That's what, that's what the people want to do. Well, it's just a lie. If you wanted to offer it up to the Lord, you should have offered it up on the battlefield as God had commanded. And twisting the words. Notice he says, uh, we totally destroyed the rest. Why does he use those words? Because he knows that's what God commanded. Total destruction. And he's twisting the meaning, saying, well, you know, everything that we destroyed, we totally destroyed. Well, that's not what God said. Total meant the whole city, everything that was alive. You see, this is what sin does. It twists, it turns, it spins in an attempt to avoid the sentence of conviction. But no matter how Saul tried to justify his actions and cover his sin, the irrefutable evidence of his disobedience was bleeding in the background. Friends, we need to know that our sins are just as evident and just as undeniable before the Lord. 
And no matter how we might try to justify it, and we can get really good at, at justification. We can become masters of blame shifting and masters of twisting words and shifting meanings in an attempt to roll out from under the, the, the sentence of conviction. But, but it, it's, it's a hopeless endeavor. You see, you can fool other people. You can. You really can. Uh, you, can you can fool yourself thoroughly and completely. But the sheep are still bleeding. God knows. The act has been done. The word has been spoken. And it can't be undone. And so notice how Samuel responds. Um, he doesn't argue with, with, with Saul. What does he say, verse 16? He says, stop. I, I think he probably shouted it. He couldn't... He couldn't he couldn't deal with it. Look at, look at um, verse 16. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. Just stop. It's wicked. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. The Lord sent you on a mission. And the Lord said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? He just calls it. Stop the prevaricating, stop the lying, stop the twisting, stop the blame shifting, stop the self-justifying. This is what God said, this is what he meant, this is what you did not do. And Saul again tries to resist it. Saul says, well, we were going to offer up in worship. And, and Samuel says in verse 22, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. You see, Saul thought that worship would cover it, that if, that if he took those animals and offered them up in sacrifice, God would be pleased with that and, and all bygones would be bygones. But it doesn't work like that. Worship doesn't atone, friends, for sin. You can be in church twice on Sunday and all through the week. It, worship doesn't atone for sin. It can't. God requires obedience. God is passionate about obedience. He delights in obedience. Disobedience is an affront to his being. It's an assault on his character. It's an attack on his name. He hates it. Do we, do we understand that? in our culture and, and, and with our hearts. Because, you see, disobedience is, well, it's really wicked. Look at verse 23. Saul doesn't back down. He names the sin. Rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. You see? Disobedience is rebellion and presumption and arrogance. God, God hates them the way he hates black magic and idolatry. They have the stench of hell on them. And so does Saul. And so do we when we sin against the voice and the word of the Lord. Now, you think, Pastor, you're just really pounding away on this. Yeah. Yeah. Because sin dulls our conscience. 
And it dulls our mind and it dulls our soul and we fall into the sin of, presum- of, of just, justifying it and thinking it not to be a big deal. And, and we, we commit the sin of rebellion and arrogance and presumption. You see, and, and it's, it's deadly. And you'll never understand the beauty of the gospel until you understand the wickedness of disobedience and God's stance towards disobedience. Notice the sentence. Saul is rejected as king and there's no undoing it. And it it seems to us with our evangelical ears, it ought to be able to be undone. Notice in verse 24, he confesses. He says, I've sinned against the Lord. I didn't didn't keep the command. I sinned. He confesses. In verse 25, he asked for pardon. Isn't that what he was supposed to do? But verse 26, he's refused. Samuel said, I will not return with you for you've rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turns to leave and Paul, uh, Saul reaches out and grabs his, his robe and rips the robe and Samuel says, uh, so the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you and given it to one of your neighbors, someone better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind for he is not a man that he should change his mind. In other words, what God has determined, he has determined and it won't be undone and it never was. It never was. Saul was never forgiven. 20 years later, Saul came to the end of his life and he was reminded of this day and this judgment, this sin. If you just have your Bible, go to chapter 28, 1 Samuel 28. Saul has spent the last 20 years slowly becoming more hardened in his sin, fighting, uh, trying to kill David. And now he comes uh, to the end of his life. There's going to be a, a great battle in uh, chapter 28. The Philistines have gathered. Uh, and um, Saul is very afraid. And so he wants, uh, but he's been, he's been asking, uh, he's inquiring of the Lord, verse 8. Verse 6, I'm sorry. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or prophets. Think of that. He's asking, Lord, show me. And, and silence, just silence. And Saul says to his servants, well, let's go find a medium. Now, he'd, he'd cast the mediums. These are people who speak with the dead. And, and there's, there's a lot of uh, interesting things here that we don't have time to go into. But, the, but they go find this, this, this lady from Endor. And, and she um, is able to call up a Samuel who's, who's dead. And she seems even uh, frightened by it. She's probably a fraud. But now suddenly, um, God uh, uses her. The woman cries. Saw, when the woman saw Samuel, verse 12, she cried out with a loud voice. And then Samuel and Saul have this conversation. Samuel being dead, but his spirit present. And Samuel, verse 15, said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I'm in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. Think of the desperateness, the desperation in this man's life. He needs to hear from, 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 from the, the divine somehow, some way. And, and Samuel had been at least a, a point of contact with God. He's desperate to hear from the Lord. 
Notice what Samuel says, verse 16. Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and has given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will, also give, will give Israel also with you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me, that is, among the dead. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hands of the Philistines. I just, man, just put yourself in, in Saul's shoes. Imagine that tomorrow you're told you're going to die. You're going to face the Lord tomorrow. And you have a sense that he's turned his back on you. And you're deeply conscious of your sin. And you call for a pastor. And the pastor comes. To, and and you, you're hoping that he can comfort you in some way. And the pastor says, don't you remember? The Lord rejected you. And he's not going to change his mind. He's rejected you. And tomorrow you're going to, you're going to be with me. You're going to die. I, I mean, this, this happened. Put yourself in the shoes of this man with all the blessings, all the privileges. And on, on, on the day of his death, the night before he dies, he's told very clearly, specifically, God has rejected him. And he's not changing his mind because of your sin. Now, that, that ought to put a, a, a tremble in you if you're paying attention. How many times haven't you and I, like Saul, refused to obey the voice of the Lord? How many times haven't, haven't we knew exactly what, what God desired, we've known exactly what God has said, and yet we followed our desires and we sinned anyway? Which means that our guilt is real. It's not a theological term. It's real. And God does not owe us forgiveness. He doesn't owe you forgiveness. He doesn't owe me repentance. He would be perfectly just to let every single one of us die in the reality of our guilt. But friends, that, when you come to that place, now you're ready to hear the gospel. And the gospel shines from this story. We, can, we don't do justice to this story of, of this king, Saul, unless we talk about two other kings. The first being King David. When you read the story of David's life, you can't help but wonder, why didn't God deal with David the way he dealt with Saul? Here's another king, the very next king, who commits incredible sin, also given great privilege and blessing, and yet misleads the people, sins against the clear command of God. David was aware of the seventh commandment. He was aware of the commandment, thou shalt not kill. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew what God required. And he completely ignored the voice of the Lord and did exactly what his flesh desired and then what his fear desired. And there was no undoing it. So, why didn't God reject him? Why doesn't David get Nathan? Why doesn't Nathan come and say, Because you've despised the word of the Lord, which he does say to him, Why have you despised the word of the Lord? But Nathan doesn't say, therefore the Lord has rejected you. David remained king. 
David remained in fellowship with the Lord. He was disciplined for his sin, but he was not cut off. Can you, can you read Psalm 51 now? With, David knows what happened to Saul. So when David says, right, don't, don't take your spirit away from me, who's he thinking of? David knows what's happened. David knows what he deserves. So, so why the difference? You see, why was David forgiven? Why did David die in peace? Why, did, why, why is David today with the Lord? What, why the difference? Now, you could point to the difference in repentance. You could say, we don't have a Psalm 51 from Saul. We don't, we don't have Saul confessing the truth of his sin and, 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 and appealing to God's steadfast love. In fact, what you see in Saul is that his life more and more shows the hardening, rebellious nature of his heart. And so there's a marked difference in repentance, but, but repentance is a gift from God. So, so David didn't repent because he was just better. David repented because God gave him the gift. And why did God give David the gift and not Saul the gift? And there's only one difference, you see. There's only one difference between David and Saul, both wicked men who deserve to be condemned. There's one difference. God had chosen David and set his steadfast love on him. And that's the only difference. That's the only difference. Though David sinned grievously and was disciplined, he was loved with an everlasting love. And it's precisely that love that David appeals to in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to what? According to your steadfast love. And friends, this, this, is, the, this is the wonder of the gospel. You see, it, it, it defines a Christian and, and, and the church as those loved by God, Romans 1 verse 7. It's the defining difference between <clears throat> a believer and someone who's left to their sin. It's that we've been loved. So, so Paul will say, the life that I live in the flesh, I live by, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what makes the difference. Now, in their sin and failure, both David and Saul point to a need for a better king, a new king, a true king, a righteous king. Because only a righteous king is going to be able to successfully wage God's war against his enemies and rescue God's people from the bondage of sin and the bondage of death. And in the fullness of time, this is the wonder of Christmas, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. That we might receive the adoption of sons. And so in this king, God makes a way for sin to be condemned and sinners to be redeemed. But it happens at a cost. Remember, Jesus becomes Saul in the sense. Jesus is rejected like Saul. Bearing our guilt. The father turns his face away from Christ. And so he experiences that, that devastating moment that Saul experiences, knowing he's going to die, begging the cup be passed, and yet not my will, but your will be done. And on the cross, my God, my God, why? You see, he experienced the devastation of of judgment, of condemnation, of, of just wrath because of our sin. But in that, in his obedient death and resurrection, 
He purchases a righteousness that washes sinners clean and robes rebels in white. That's the beauty of the gospel. You're, you and I, are, we're, we're the sinners, we're the rebels who deserve to be judged, and yet, and yet God in Christ has made a way for us to be robed in white. And, and if you sense, through, Psalm, through, through uh, 1 Samuel 15, if you, if you sense the awfulness of sin and exactly what it deserves from God, your sin, and the, and the irrefutable reality of your guilt, that it can't be justified away, then this Jesus becomes so, so precious. You see, friends, this, this story of Saul and his sin is, is meant to reveal the necessity and the glory of Jesus. That's why it's in Scripture. Our obedient king, the faithful second Adam, who actually and truly has defeated the devil. He's broken the curse. He's making everything new and invites us today to enter into his train, to be a part of his victory as we acknowledge our sin and cast ourselves upon Upon him. The story of the gospel is the story of God choosing rebels like you and me to be beloved sons and daughters. That's Ephesians chapter 1. Jesus sets his steadfast love. The Father set his steadfast love upon you. If you're a Christian, that means before the foundation of the world, the Father set his steadfast love upon you and claimed you. And that steadfast love will never, ever, ever, ever let you go. It's the one difference. And it's a difference utterly of grace. But there's also an invitation, you see. We've been loved. If you're a Christian, you can know that, that you're loved by and belong to Jesus. That's your only comfort in life and death. But what if you're not a Christian? What if what you, just, you just know you're a sinner? Well, the invitation comes from Jesus Christ himself. Whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out that come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the wonder of the gospel. And, we're, and, that's, and that's not a fairy tale. That's not, a, that's not just a, a religious thought or idea. That is from the mouth of God to you. That if you will confess your sin, if you will, if you will trust in this Jesus who came and bore your sin and your shame and died under your guilt, if you will trust what he has accomplished, that you today need not be like Saul, but you today can be a son and daughter of the Most High God. I invite you, if you've, if you've never um, actually taken that step, don't wait. Come and talk to me. Talk to, you can talk to just about anybody here at, in, in the building about how to do that, and we'd love to pray with you. Friends, this, this, is, a, this is a real gospel for real sinners. Purchased by a real Savior who shed his real blood to give us real life forever. Really. Praise God, it's true. Let's pray. Oh, God in heaven, you know us. There's bleeding sheep all over in our lives. Evidences of our sin that we can't justify away. God in heaven, I thank you so much that Christ died for sinners. And we can, we can say we are the chief, but it's a trustworthy saying, worthy of full acceptance, and I pray we'd accept it today, not in, not in some shallow religious way, but Lord, in the depths of our being, that we would sense what it means to stand before the, the bar of divine justice and how desperately we need Jesus and how gloriously 
he has rescued us from all that we deserve by bearing it himself so that we love Jesus. Lord, that's our desire, to love Jesus, the one who loved us and gave his life for us. And that we move forward, Lord, in obedience then to him because we love him and we love to do his will and we love to be used for his purposes and his mission in the world. And we, we hunger for the day when, when the obedience will be perfect because our heart and soul and mind will be perfect. But Lord, till then, I pray that we would lay hold of all that you have for us in Christ and that we would take up this war with sin with a ferocious joy with a tremendous confidence in Christ, with a deep delight of all that he's done for us. So that, Lord, the the shadows of gloom, just like David, we pray, Lord, let the joy of salvation be experienced by us again. And the gloom is taken away. And the shame is gone. And all the fear with it. And that we, Lord, trust in a love that will never, never let us go. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.